Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider, is it possible to write a riveting and deeply moving memoir if you had a happy childhood with parents who adored and supported you, and you now live in harmony with the love of your life? I don't know if everyone could, probably not, but New Yorker writer Katherine Schultz absolutely has. Katherine has written about a number of fascinating topics. Her first book, for example, Being Wrong, is a best-selling history of an investigation into human mistakes. Now, in her memoir, Lost and Found, she weaves personal stories with an exploration of forces that shape all of our lives, like joy and grief. I just want to say I love this book. I flew through it the first time I read it, and I want to reread it at least one more time, more slowly. Catherine is just a magnificent writer, and the book is so full of wisdom and thought-provoking passages. It makes me so happy to get to recommend it to everyone here and to have this conversation with Catherine to share. Uh, oh, me too. I'm dying to read it again, and I've already bought copies for my kids in paper, so you know it's oh. meant to keep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing I love about the book is the way Catherine illuminates the familiar. So just take the title of the book, which reflects its structure, Lost and Found. In the section of the book called Lost, Catherine talks about the death of her father. In Found, she shares the story of meeting the woman she would marry. And in an ingenious third section called And, she delves into this omnipresent word in a fascinating way. I had no idea what to expect from that section, and it ended up being my favorite. Yeah, we talk a lot about the and section in the interview, so we won't spoil it for you now why it's so remarkable. But trust us, it is. So a little more about Catherine. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2015. She won a National Magazine Award and a Pulitzer Prize that year for the really big one, an article about seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. And if you have not read that article, go read it now. It's incredible. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, but Lost and Found grew out of a piece called Losing Streak, which was originally published in The New Yorker and later anthologized in The Best American Essays. Her other essays and reporting have appeared in The Best American Science and Nature Writing, The Best American Travel Writing, and The Best American Food Writing. We started by asking Catherine what it was like to write first being wrong, and then lost and found, given that both explore sweeping human questions. But the memoir is, you know, unsurprisingly, far more personal and intimate. Here's what she said. That's such a wonderful question. And I am actually particularly grateful for you recognizing that there is something in common in these otherwise radically different books. In general, I am drawn to 
abstractions, which is a strange thing as a journalist and a writer in some ways. I admire my colleagues who are drawn to stories and kind of notice them left and right. And I do tend to kind of notice these big abstract organizing ideas in our lives, you know, things like error and our relationship to it, or in the case of this book, most obviously love and grief, but more out of left field, this idea of conjunction and continuation and these complicated ideas contained in the third section of the book, the, the section called And. So in that sense, <laughs> in that sense, the books felt a little bit similar to me. That said, you're right to point out that a memoir is a radically different beast. And this book certainly felt very different to write than my last one. Less what you might imagine, which is kind of the emotional process of writing it, and more just where I was turning to kind of excavate ideas or generate stories or commit to the page the kinds of thoughts and ideas that felt important to me. Lost and Found begins with a section called Lost about the loss of your father. And he certainly had more than a lifetime's worth of experiences during the course of his childhood alone. Can you tell us a little bit about that childhood? Yes, my father had a childhood that was simultaneously very interesting and very difficult, and it intersected in interesting ways, as I suppose all lives do, with the kind of sweeping course of history around him. So my dad was born in 1941 in Tel Aviv, in what is now Israel, but at the time was still Palestine. His mother was the youngest of 13 children who grew up on a shtetl in Poland, and when the war was coming... Her family did not have the financial means to save all of them intact. And they made what I'm sure was a really agonizing decision to kind of gather up what money they did have and, and send away their youngest daughter, which is how she wound up in Palestine, married to a considerably older gentleman. And they had my father. And so he spent his very earliest years in Tel Aviv. And then after the war, the region was obviously in tumult. There was sort of, you know, a new nation being formed out of the Middle East. And we've seen how that that's, you know, still to this day, not resolved itself into a peaceful situation or an easy place to live. So my grandparents eventually decided it was just not a viable place. By then they had three young children and it didn't feel like a safe place to raise them. So they, they packed up their very meager possessions and in a kind of surprising trajectory, given that it was 1945, just after the end of the war, um, they moved to Germany. Mm. That's crazy. <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And needless to say, there, there were still Jews in Germany. You know, there were those who had survived the war, uh, tragically few of them, but, you know, Jews who'd been liberated from the camps and were living for the most part in refugee camps in Germany. But there were very few Jews who were choosing to move to Germany at that exact moment, unless it was to join relatives in refugee camps and, and wait for visas. But my grandfather had heard correctly, as it turned out, that it was possible to make a living on the black market in post-war Germany. Um, my grandfather was many things, but one of them was a, a real hustler. And I think he would probably excelled at selling things on the black market. So surprisingly, my father has relatively peaceful memories of his years in Germany. And they were there seven years. You know, it was a very strange and in many ways, of course, difficult place to be as a Jew, but obviously really formative for him. And then Finally, um, after many years of applying and waiting, they'd got refugee visas. They were sponsored by one of my grandmother's sisters, the only one to survive Auschwitz, who was already living in Detroit. So they wound up then settling in Detroit, which is where my father spent the rest of his childhood. You know, many writers would take experiences like those and write an entire book about them. They're just extraordinary. But 
you know, although you mentioned this background of your fathers in your book, it's not at all your primary focus. Instead, you center your attention on the loss of someone you love, which is deeply tumultuous, but in a very different way. Were you at all tempted to delve deeper in the book into your father's childhood story? And what drew you to the approach that you took? That is such an interesting question. I've always been tempted to dive, delve deeper into my father's story in all kinds of ways, not, not just to write about it, but just to understand it better. And he himself did not really experience that temptation until quite late in life. Um, my father had a complicated family. And like many families that's comprised primarily of Holocaust survivors, there was a lot of silence around really formative central questions and matters, including, you know, who his biological father actually was and many things I don't even get into in the book. So I've always been fascinated by my father's life story. And I, of course, think that the enormity of of the tragedy of the Holocaust is a story that can never be told too often and that needs to be populated with particular families and particular people. And I experienced the existence of my father as a miracle and a kind of example of everything that was lost. You know, there were a lot of potential Isaac Schultz who didn't live because their parents didn't live or their grandparents didn't live. You're right to think there's certainly a vast body of material and I could have written much more I knew from the get-go, despite my interest in it, that I actually was not writing a Holocaust memoir. I knew what I'd set out to write, which was this very compact little three-part book. And the first part was about loss, and it was grounded in a personal story of grief, but was an exploration of this category more generally. And I knew from the beginning that as powerful as my father's story was... You can't like throw a Holocaust memoir into the middle <laughs> of a book about something else. You just can't. And it's part of why I'm, I'm quite sparing with that story, because any story about the Holocaust deserves the full weight of our attention. And any story that, you know, you you emphasize too much about the Holocaust in a book that isn't about that is is kind of the proverbial bowling ball on the waterbed. Right. I mean, it just like throws the whole thing in a strange direction. You've been blessed with a life full of love, right? Loving, wonderful parents, a loving, wonderful wife. As you say in Lost and Found, there's a, quote, general consensus that happiness is pleasant but uninteresting. (laughs) And I was certainly taught to write about conflict and tension, that they keep readers turning the pages. I want to be clear that I flew through your book notwithstanding the lack of sort of obvious conflict and tension in the relationships that you're describing. It reminded me actually of something that my mother-in-law, whom I adored, said when my first child was born. She said, basically, parents often worry too much about, quote unquote, spoiling children. Her philosophy was, there's nothing you can do to prevent life from being rocky for your children. So let your home be as happy and enjoyable as possible within reason. Because even for the very blessed, although granted less for them than for others, life is inevitably tough. So I see that reflected in your book, you know, sort of life alone gives us enough to keep turning the pages. I'm wondering if you agree with that and whether there's anything else you'd like to say about your decision to write a book centered on happy relationships. I agree passionately with that. And I am thrilled that you felt that my book about happiness was a page turner. I really am because (laughs) you're exactly right. I mean, I think, look, trauma is interesting and it is important and it deserves our attention. There's no question about it. Um, But I was very mindful writing this book that, you know, a large proportion of the memoirs that are most 
popular and most read today are stories either of just extraordinary lives, you know, you're Michelle Obama, or they are stories of trauma in one form or another. You're Tara Westover and you wrote Educated or, you know, you're Mary Carr and you wrote Liars Club. Both books I hugely admire, all three books I hugely admire, to be clear. But I look, I'm not famous. You know, I'm not Michelle Obama. I did and do have a very happy life for which I am grateful every hour of every day. And yes, it just didn't feel to me like an obstacle to an interesting story. You know, I find my life interesting. <laughs> I find happiness interesting. It's um, why wouldn't it be? We all want it, right? It is, I think, fragile, obviously for some people more than others. But I, your mother-in-law was a wise woman. I think that's completely correct that there is no getting around some portion of duress and difficulty and in most cases, trauma and tragedy in our lives. I've had an incredibly happy life. I also have had trauma and tragedy in it. Uh, and I, I don't mean my father's death, which I regard as very sad, but not tragic. But I have, as almost all grown adults have, I, I have experienced actual tragedy in my life and actual trauma in my life. And so it's not that I was trying to keep them at bay in these pages. In fact, a lot of this book is a reckoning with how do we accept that tragedy and sorrow and loss are just omnipresent. And they are, they're in fact kind of enfolded into our joy and our happiness because whatever it is that's making us happy is transient, right? I mean, even if it's a 60 year marriage, you know, which knock on wood, you live with the fact that it will end someday. That's the price of being mortal. It's the definition of being mortal. So yes, to me, it felt like, well, our kind of fundamental terms of existence present conflict. You know, I don't, I don't need to go looking for one. Uh, and, and I don't need to create one. I, to be alive is to face death, our own and, and that of people we love and to face suffering of all kinds. And yet so much joy and so much beauty in the midst of that. And somehow we're called upon to just hold both of those realities within us every day of our lives. And that was more than sufficiently interesting to me. I've been thinking a lot lately about what makes a book gripping, because as I think I've mentioned once or twice on the podcast before, I'm, I'm trying to write a thriller. But the thriller rules do not apply here. As we've said, there's no interpersonal tension or conflict. And in fact, there's very little plot. It's a great reminder that someone's thoughts and the way they express them can be gripping. The problem, of course, is coming up with the thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> that, that does seem effortless for Catherine. As Gia Tolentino, another New Yorker writer, puts it in her blurb for Lost and Found, Catherine, quote, has a singular way of turning a familiar idea around and around until it becomes cosmic, geological, wondrous. To read her is to be quietly amazed at hidden depths and histories, as if you were to discover a map of a continent written in the palm of your hand. Sorry, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a little hung up Gia on the children. Oh my god! Yes. Um, but yes, exactly that. That is what happens when Catherine writes, right. and it's right. excellent. Even in the one fight that Catherine includes in the book between her and her partner, whom she calls C. So on the one hand, as Catherine freely acknowledges, it's trivial. It stems from an offhand comment about a bear. But in her hands, it turns into a fascinating assessment of how domestic arguments aren't actually about what they seem to be on their face. And instead, they're a window into deeper dynamics, which, 
you know, we all know, right? Sure, Especially sure. after being married for decades. Right. But again, somehow when Catherine writes about the familiar, I find truths I felt but have never been able to articulate before. And I felt so much kinship with her while I was reading all three parts of the book. It it just brought me a lot of solace. Yes, absolutely. And I loved reading her particular assessments. I wanted to bring her home with me, let her watch my family fight, and then say to her, here's what I think is actually going on. What do you see? Yes. That would be really helpful. Anyway, in the book, she paints such a vivid picture of characters like C through those kinds of assessments and through the stories that she tells. And C does not come across as somebody who craves attention. So we asked Catherine whether we had read that right, and if so, what it was like writing a memoir that included C so prominently in its pages. Here's what she said. Um, she's actually an incredibly private person, which I, big surprise, I'm not, <laughs> as, you might, as you might guess about the memoir writer. Um, she's, she's very private. And the truth is, I just jokingly called myself a memoir writer, but I actually, I have no history of being a memoir writer. When we met, I, you know, I'd written the occasional essay in which, in which I appeared, but it's very different to have a kind of first person I in a narrative than it is to actually be writing about yourself in any depth, let alone about the people around you. So, you know, yes, my poor partner, there's just no reason on earth she would have thought when we got together, or in fact, even when she married me, that I was going to up and write about our life and not just my life and her life and our life together, but actually about the the life and history of her family, which turns out to be central to the book. So, but no, I mean, she was incredible about it. I think, um, you know, she was present literally at the moment, the idea kind of crystallized for me and has been a champion of it from that moment on and has never hesitated. There was this like wonderful stage of writing this book when, um, I would write during the day and then I would go upstairs and in bed at night, I would read her what I'd written that day. And so one night I come up to bed and she says, what do you write today? And I said, well, I wrote about a fight between us. <laughs> it, it was probably the only moment in the whole course of writing this book that I sort of saw her kind of visibly blanch. <laughs> <laughs> but I, of course, was kind of grinning like the cat who ate the canary because I, I knew she would love it, actually. And, and she did. And, and she laughed all the way through it. And I think appreciated that there's something fundamental about relationship dynamics that, that I hope comes a little bit alive in that section. Uh, this passage in Lost and Found made me laugh out loud. On the spectrum of obsessively orderly to sublimely unconcerned with the everyday physical world, my father and sister were... Actually, they were nowhere. They were somewhere near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, still looking for the spectrum itself. My mother and I, meanwhile, were busy organizing it by color and size. I have a vivid memory of watching my mom try to adjust an ever so slightly askew picture frame in the Cleveland Museum of Art. That's crazy. That. Yeah. As the torchbearer for my maternal lineage, at least in this respect, I have always been naturally inclined to do slightly unnatural things, like organizing the pantry by food group 
or putting every one of 64 crayons back in the exact same slot it was assigned at the factory. I mean, that is impressive. Okay, wait, we um, need to interrupt for a second. Yes, yes. I do both of those things. Oh, uh, wow. I, knew, I knew you were going to interrupt wow. to say that. I am wow. I, my, 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 my kin are legion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it would never, it never even occurred to me to try to put them back, the crayons back in the slots they were assigned. But okay, I'm wondering whether you think that this attention to order that you have has anything to do with your incredible precision with and deep dives into language. I love the idea that your book is called Lost and Found, and you have a section for each of those three words, not just lost, not just found, but also the and. Um, you can talk about your psychology if you want to, but also what led you to the structure and what in particular brought you to your deep dive into the word and? Hmm. I'm happy to answer both of those, actually. I think it's always very hard and to some extent always kind of a post hoc game of who knows how any of us became the person that we are. But I, I grew up with a really wonderful combination of order and disorder when it came to the English language. And you're right to suggest that the order might have been helpful unto me. Uh, my mom was as orderly with words as she was with, you know, her own versions of pantries and crayons. She's just a, a, a precise person, but also, you know, a lifelong language teacher professionally as, as well as naturally and a real grammarian. And she is, in fact, the reason that I you know, know how to use the subjunctive, for instance. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> there's no question that that was formative for me as a writer, but it was formative in contrast to my father, who was an unbelievably eloquent speaker, but also just a really delightful one to listen to, not because he was subfluent. English was his seventh language, so he might reasonably have been subfluent, but in fact, he was superfluent. He sort of aggregated all of these languages into an incredibly delightful understanding of the possibilities of the uses of language itself. And so, you know, my mom was kind of a real follower and my dad was a real rule breaker when it came to fun things you can do with the English language. So I think I benefited from both of them immensely. Um, mm -hmm. As to the word and, um, well, look, I mean, I knew, as I said from the beginning, I, I knew the structure of this book, and that was incredibly helpful. And the truth is, I, I wanted to write this book because of the and section. I was very glad to write about my father in essay form after he died and didn't really have aspirations to expand it into a book. Then when it occurred to me that I could pair my story of loss with my story of discovery of falling in love, I thought, well, okay, that's actually kind of more interesting to me because it did seem fun to write a love story. And there's frankly kind of precious few of them out there in nonfiction form. But I didn't kind of internally assent to the book until the end. <laughs> and, and, and that to me was the moment when I thought, okay, this is actually interesting to me. Like I'm actually going to write this book. And it was quite instant actually. It was like, ah, okay, this is a book. This is the linchpin. Here's how it works. Here's why it works. I had the experience of losing my father and falling in love, not at, exactly at the same time, but in quite close proximity. Yes, my father and my partner met, but we sort of got one of everything. You know, we got one Thanksgiving, we got one birthday, we got one Hanukkah, like, and, 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 then, and then that was it. So I thought a lot about the kind of overlap of grief and love. And that led me to think about how representative that is of life, right? Where we're just always experiencing everything 
in conjunction. <laughs> you know, you adore your brother, but he makes you absolutely crazy. Or you can barely stand to say five words to your ex-husband, but you just adore the children you wouldn't have if you'd never married him. Or your own life is going wonderfully, but your country's in crisis and the world is in a pandemic. Or, you know, th these kinds of emotional and experiential conjunctions are just, they're just the texture of life. It's what all of us live with. And I got very interested in that and interested as well in the other idea implicit in the word and, which is, you know, on the one hand, it is the idea of conjunction of two things existing together, like love and grief. But it's also this idea of continuation, you know, and then, and then, and then it's kind of the thing grammatically that propels us forward. And I think a lot about how to map the scale of our own lives against the scale of existence and how so much kind of carries on and continues on after us and, and how to live with that kind of possibility, but also that kind of grief as well. So, and was immediately very interesting to me because it contained both of these ideas of conjunction and of continuation. It did strike me as interesting to just begin with thinking about the word because who thinks about the word and, right? I mean, it's like almost invisible. We use it a thousand times a day at a conservative estimate, but it's, you know, there's, this just doesn't seem like there's that much to think about. And then the more I read about it, the more I was like, this word is amazing. There's a ton to think about. And mm -hmm. very early on learned that the ampersand, this kind of visual rendering of the word and uh, used to be literally incorporated into the alphabet. It was the 27th character in the alphabet yeah, until the yeah, early 20th century. Away. I know, right? Who knew? How do we forget <laughs> history that's so recent? You know, like yeah. our grandparents, our great grandparents were including this in their versions of the alphabet and then it just vanished. But yes, I got, I got very interested in the word and then it also just seemed like a relatively straightforward way to walk readers into, well, let's think about this specific conjunction and then let's think about the idea of conjunction and how it works in our lives. Now, you frame the found section of the book with a story of a meteorite. Mm. Can you tell a little about that story and why you chose to frame the section that way? I begin that section with a, a story um, that I know quite personally about a, a little boy, uh, an 11-year-old kid named Billy who crazily is almost hit by a meteorite. It's almost hit by a falling star. I cannot begin to describe to you how unbelievably uncommon that occurrence is. I mean, to watch a meteorite fall and have it fall near enough to you that you can go back the next day. It happened to him at night and he was a little kid, so he had to go home. You can go back the next day into the fields that your father farms and find it, a literal one in a billion odds. I can't think of a better metaphor for the experience of falling in love, which is what the found story is really about, than this kind of dazzling appearance out of nowhere of this rare and beautiful thing that you feel unbelievably special and fortunate to have found. Mm -hmm. One of your many observations that grabbed me was when you said, and again, I'm quoting you here, many very wise thinkers regard a timely death as fundamentally good and make far bolder claims for its merits than mere relief from pain. The devout may view death as an important transformation or a welcome homecoming, while the secular may see it as both morally and psychologically necessary, because a life that went on forever would be devoid of meaning. I have always thought that this was true. Our time here, it seems to me, is made precious by virtue of being scarce. I've been thinking about that ever since I read it, and I'm so glad I have the chance to ask you, why would an infinite life have no meaning and I guess coming at it a different way, what is the meaning that scarcity bestows on life? Boy, you're really just pitching out the softballs today, huh? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, thank you for asking probably the hardest question in, in, raised by the entire book. Um, and, and frankly, the hardest okay, well, question. Well, let me be totally honest. I read this and I thought, I have no idea what the meaning of life is, but I think Catherine might. Let me be very clear. I don't I don't know what the meaning of life is, although I don't think it's incidental. You know, famously, right? The meaning of life is that it stops. I think death is important, the kind of meaning we make from life. I, I say this against my own emotions and my own um, desires because I would take the Faustian bargain, you know, offer me infinite life. Like, yep, I'm there. Don't have to think for three seconds. <laughs> um, I, I have no desire to die. I think life is amazing. I, I relish experiencing it. But many people far wiser than I am have come to this conclusion that actually a life without temporal boundaries would not be meaningful the way that we currently experience it. And, you know, I am not emotionally, but I am intellectually semi persuaded by that. I think that it is both regrettable, but also not accidental that we experience almost all things as more precious when they're in shorter supply. There's a reason why sapphires are more valuable unto us than pencil erasers, right? I mean, there, there, there's a scarcity has the quality of making us realize the sort of wonderful and, and beautiful and dazzling features of, of something. Mm -hmm. I have this baby daughter, right? And it's actually brutally horrible to think about mortality in the face of this gorgeous new baby of mine, my mortality, her mortality, mortality in general. And yet it's so clear that some of what makes the experience of motherhood so precious in the same way that some of what makes the experience of being a daughter so precious or the experience of falling in love and being a partner so precious is this sense that this has been given unto me, you know, by whatever force you yourself may choose to believe into, but this is mine for now. It's mine to protect. It's mine to cherish. It's mine to notice and to revel in the every detail of it. And I, why would we revel in the every detail of something we were going to have forever and ever? You know, why would we be moved to tears by how beautiful that moment is when a baby first laughs? If we could have infinity babies because we could live forever and ever. I, I just, I don't think you can decouple the sense of something as unbelievably valuable from the awareness that it is not ours to have forever. So yes, I'm, I'm reasonably persuaded that life has given its incredible preciousness by the fact that it does not go on forever, but I certainly wish it were otherwise. I also gravely doubt I answered your question at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually, I think you did. And thank you. Yes. And this question that I'm about to sort of pose is not actually even fully a question and might just be a continuation of what you were saying. But the last line of Lost and Found, like so many other lines in the book, is just beautiful. It's, we are here to keep watch, not to keep. I just wanted to read that aloud, really. I don't really have a question about it, but um, feel free to expound if you would like. I can expound on it, actually. Oh, good. Um, it is one of not very many lines that is preserved from the original essay that I wrote about my father after he died. So this book, as I said, grew out of a, a New Yorker essay. My father died in 2016, and in February of 2017, I published this 
very strange little elegy um, that won't seem strange to you because now you've read the book that was about losing things in general, you know, cell phones, keys, wallets, fathers, elections, all, all the weight of everything that was upon me about loss uh, in, in late 2016. And that line that you just read is the last line of the essay as well. I knew two things when I set out to write this book. One was the overall structure and the other was it had to end where the essay ended, partly because I just thought that's the exact thought I need and I will never find a better way to say it. Because I vividly remember figuring out how to say it when I was writing the essay. The whole essay was done. I had literally, I try not to do this. My poor editor at the New Yorker, he's terribly patient with me, but it sent in this essay and it just literally kind of didn't have the very end. So um, I said, here's the piece. It doesn't quite have an ending yet. And I remember very clearly sitting in the chair in my living room in the dark. It was, you know, January or early February. So, you know, it was probably about 5 p.m., but it was already dark outside. And I was sitting in that chair looking at a printout of the piece thinking, you know, how does this thing end? And, and thinking about loss and how overwhelmingly strong the desire can be to just hold on to things, you know, to not lose mm -hmm. them. And that word keep just hadn't come to me in the whole course of writing it. I was, I was thinking about the loss side of the equation, not the kind of emotional response to it, which is the, the, the desperate desire to cling. Mm. And so that, that word, you know, to try to keep things came to me and uh, sort of immediately I had the, you know, we're, we're here to keep watch, not to keep. Like once I had keep, I had the whole thought and I thought, oh, well, that's the end of my piece. <laughs> I, I knew right away it had to be the end of the book too, because, you know, I don't, I wouldn't stand beside every sentence I just uttered about, for instance, immortality and to what extent it would dilute the preciousness of life. But I do stand by that last line and I don't know a better way to say what it is I think we're here to do. I have to admit, when we were preparing our questions for Catherine and you said you wanted to ask about the meaning of life, I was skeptical. Mm. I mean, I had read the book. I had a sense of how insightful she is, but I thought this is just too hard. You know, what? Whatever answer she gives, it's going to be a mess. But I love the answer she gave and that sentence too, right? Mm. We are here to keep watch, not to keep. I mean, I have gleaned that raising my daughters without ever putting it so beautifully either in my head or to others. But somehow it never occurred to me to extend it to the whole of life. It fills me with a sense of peace, just kind of thinking about doing that. Yeah, there's that solace and kinship again. And, you know, that meaning of life question may have been the closest that you and I have ever come to conflict. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I added the question to our list and then you put it at the end and then I moved it up and then you moved it down a little. And finally, I said, this question is really important to me. We have to make sure to ask it. And you said, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and in retrospect, it was a very George and Martha exchange who are as you know, two of my favorite characters in all of literature. Yes, two great friends. Yes, yeah. exactly. Sorry about that, by the way. Let's just spell out for the record, too, that you were absolutely right. Um, and I think that's a perfect note for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast to end on. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would, too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at booktreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. 
You can find Catherine at www.catherineschultz.com and on Twitter at Catherine Schultz. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julianne.